This is Peter Jacoby. Among the celebrities drawn here to Bloomington on a spring weekend uh, to be present at the inaugural concerts of a much-awaited pipe organ in our hall on the Indiana University campus is Michael Barone, the host and executive producer of Pipe Dreams, the nationally broadcast weekly radio series devoted to the organ. So we have the privilege of Michael Barone's company in our studio. He is our guest for this installment of Profiles. Welcome, Michael Perone. Happy to be here, Peter. You make it sound very official as the executive producer. It's just that I'm the guy that does it. <laughs> well, that's, that's important. Somebody has to do it. And I guess that's sort of executive-y. I also like the inclusiveness of this new organ on campus. It is not your organ. It is in our hall, you know. That's exactly and, you know, I couldn't think uh, of a host for Pipe Dreams more appropriate than you. And I'm not even talking about your experience or your knowledge, but it's the voice, <laughs> that bass baritone, that creamy bass baritone. If there is a speaking equivalent to the organ, I think it's you. So I'm delighted to have you with me. Not quite sure how to respond to that. <laughs> I, I have been told by others that uh, they find my voice pleasurable. It's something that... Uh, believe me, when I began in radio back at Oberlin on the little 10-watt station, I didn't sound like this, and I have not really had any training to sound like this. And it might be that after several years of being on the air and not hearing oneself because you were always live, when I first went to what is now Minnesota Public Radio, it was St. John's University Broadcasting in Collegeville, Minnesota, I was the sixth full-time staff, and I was one of two announcers who were responsible for filling the air from about six in the morning until one the next morning. Inevitably, we were not there live all the time, and there were student operators, and I would make voice tracks for the Saturday and Sunday, and I would sit at home and listen as these kids would run the voice tracks, and I think listening to myself, I thought, well, hmm, maybe I could do this better. So... I'm happy that people like it. I, I'm also told that women particularly enjoy my voice, but uh, this has not paid off in any really substantial way yet. <laughs> I don't have any groupies making uh, no groupies. Oh, salacious my. offers. <laughs> I'm not inviting any, though, either. Now, you're visiting Bloomington to participate in all these organ activities. and uh, What feeling uh, is aroused in you when you're in the presence of a new organ? Uh, enthusiasm, excitement, uh, delight, uh, relief in a way. This instrument with such a huge, almost sometimes burdensome history has been around for a long time. Uh, it has had its ups and downs, uh, both mechanically and uh, orally and certainly politically, the way organs are used and the way organists are used and abused but the fact that it has been with us and has been, if not always at the center, certainly an important element of Western culture for the better part of seven or 800 years and has this remarkable active repertoire that goes back to the late 15th, early 16th century, it's both astonishing and surprising and yet very reassuring that a new organ is built 
in the 21st century that keeps all of this alive and yet also gives us potential for going somewhere new that we haven't even imagined yet. What about the quality of organs being built today? Is the craft uh, still in flower? Absolutely. And I think it could be argued that American builders are rated as high as any anywhere in the world. Uh, I don't want to give the impression that this has not been the case in the past, but it has taken the American builder a little while to establish a sense of self. The early builders came with their backgrounds from Europe, uh, Germany, England primarily. Uh, the industrial age brought mechanical and technical innovations, which American builders, maybe because we're this fresh, uh, adventuresome nation, this young country, American builders were more prone to use particularly electric action and uh, the opportunities for putting pipes in places where maybe they shouldn't be, but uh, it uh, seemed like a fun thing at the time. And the development of the theater organ, a particularly American expression of the pipe organ. But since the Baroque revival in mid-century, mid-20th century, and the reflection back on the history of the instrument, American organ craftsmen have, I think, been more conscious of the detail and the intricacy and the importance of that historic heritage than their European counterparts. The European counterparts were, uh, as we have been ourselves with our own instruments, maybe more prone to look at the previous generation's work as old hat and they want to cast a new direction and not necessarily worry about preserving. But I, th I think when American organ builders went to Europe to explore the untouched historic treasures and find out what they could tell us, they learned more quickly and put that learning to use more quickly. And I think European builders had to take notice of what American builders were doing and get themselves on the bandwagon too. Now, you favor the pipe organ over electronic and... Well, see, I, I guess I'm a conservative insofar as my idea of the organ, my definition of the organ, requires that wind be blown through pipes. I mean, that was what was invented 2,000-some years ago, and, and that is what we still enjoy here uh, at the university in this new instrument. That technology has allowed us to either synthesize through electronic means or sample uh, with microphones and recordings and then play back through speakers with computers uh, the sound of or the approximate sound of the pipe organ. Uh, it's interesting, and there are probably circumstances, both economic and uh, physical, where the installation of a non pipe instrument is justified. The best of the non-pipe instruments make quite credible sounds. And in some circumstances, it could be argued that the very best of the non-pipe instruments is better than some of the less good of the pipe mm -hmm. instruments. 
But in the end, if we're looking for the very finest expression of the art, it has to be an organ with pipes because anything else is simply an attempt at mimicking. Now, there still are some major concert halls around that don't have pipe organs, right? Yeah, it's... Is that sadness for you? For me in particular, because in Minnesota, when the Minnesota Orchestra built their orchestra hall, the acoustician, Cyril Harris, made it very clear that uh, according to his needs to create for them a hall that would be acoustically perfect for the orchestra, it was not allowable for a pipe organ to be installed. I've found his reasoning to be faulty from the very beginning because at that time and still, the three acknowledged finest concert halls in the world, Boston Symphony Hall, Concertgebouw in Amsterdam, and the Musikverein in Vienna, all of which have pipe organs in them. So it does not seem to require that one eliminate a pipe organ in order to get a good acoustic for a symphony orchestra. So when a new hall is built and an organ is not installed, it's a bit worrisome because there is a large repertoire which really requires this instrument. Now, there are all sorts of other extenuating circumstances which make the installation of a pipe organ in a modern hall with modern uses of it and modern management restrictions around how the hall is used makes the presence of the organ problematical. Union stagehands have to be paid when a console is rolled out on stage or when even an instrument is turned on. So these halls also are in pretty much constant use, if not only by their orchestra than by other acts that are brought in. You spend several million dollars to put a stupendous instrument in a concert hall and then can use it only a few times a year. The music director of the orchestra is not interested in featuring the organ every time. When I was complaining to the management of the Philadelphia Orchestra at the opening of Verizon Hall at the Kimball Center, where after great haranguing and after much expenditure of dollars, a new instrument was inaugurated. The orchestra played a series of concerts one weekend. They had to add another one because it was so popular that they had more people wanting to come than they had originally than they had originally allowed tickets for. But they had scheduled absolutely nothing in the following season which featured the organ as a solo instrument. I mean, it would uh, groan at the beginning of Also Sprach Zarathustra or, you know, shout in the midst of Bartok's Bluebeard Castle. But, uh, you know, there was no Jean Gand, there was no Poulenc. And I was told by management, well, you know, just because we got a new piano wouldn't mean that we'd feature the piano every week in a concert. And I, thought, I don't know whether it's an exact parallel. <laughs> now, the organ was not your first instrument, I understand. You talked to me about the tuba? Well, that, that that came second. I started with piano at age five. I was just sent down the street to the sweet little old lady, and she really was the archetypical little lady down the old lady down the street, Stella Pickett, bless her heart, and very patient. Um, I learned the rudiments there. I ended up continuing piano lessons with the organist at our church, Marianne Wallace, and uh, she got me up to a certain level technically, but I frankly probably don't have within me the proper uh, links of synapses to make 
what is required of a really fine pianist possible. You know, my sparks don't go fast enough. My my heart is in the right place, but my fingers are often uh, wandering over the noisy keys, as it were. In uh, grade school, at the end of fourth grade, I was asked whether I wanted to learn an instrument so I could be in the band. I don't know whether I'd given it much thought, but as a child, one of the favorite childhood recordings that I played was the story of Tubby the Tuba. And I don't, you know, you know, if it had been Fred the Flute, I probably would have asked for a different instrument. But I, I said, I'd like to learn to play the tuba. Well, when you're about four and a half feet tall, this is not something that is physically possible. But they figured, what the heck? And they strapped me into a baritone horn, but had me reading the bass clef. I mean, I could read the clefs because I had piano lessons. So that was no big deal. So I sat in the back of our middle school band playing the tuba part on a baritone horn until I grew up and was big enough to carry a sousaphone, and uh, away we went. Well, we always put a little music into these profiles, and uh, I understand you brought a tuba selection, and let's turn to that. What is it? And If you think about it, there are not a lot of solo vehicles for the tuba, and so I was really delighted when, not too many months ago, Noxos released a disc of some pieces by Samuel Jones, who used to teach at the University of Houston and now, I believe, is the composer-in-residence at the Seattle Symphony in Washington State. And he wrote a marvelous, absolutely incredibly beautiful, as well as extremely challenging concerto for the principal of the Seattle Symphony. The virtuosity that is both required and delivered here is one thing, but the musicality, the beauty of tone, you you don't expect a tuba to uh, be quite so poetic as well as profound. And for Samuel Jones, the tuba is as expressive an instrument as any imaginable. Here's the final movement. We have just heard the last movement of Samuel Jones' tuba concerto, and that goes back to your tuba days. Do you still play the tuba at all? Well, no, I hadn't played it at all since high school until just a year ago, not this past Christmas, but the one before. Um, There is this thing called Tuba Christmas, which happens all around the country, and everyone who has access to a tuba gets together and uh, with an hour or so of prior rehearsal, well, this is the Harvey Phillips. Yeah, uh, right, exactly. 
plays Christmas carols. Yes. Is he here? Was he? He was here. Oh boy! Yes, for so I'm I'm years. I'm at hallowed hallowed Retired. ground here. Yes. So a friend of mine coaxed me and had an he he had a tuba and he had an extra sousaphone that he only used. Uh, <laughs> he would go down to New Orleans at Mardi Gras time and drag this battered sousaphone with him. So he uh, brought the sousaphone and gave it to me, and I spent about 30 minutes down in the church basement trying to remember the fingerings. And I think I got about 85% of the notes and uh, stood for the whole hour and a half of the event and had a good time, but I didn't choose to do it again this year. Maybe I'll work out a longer borrow so that I can get an embouchure back, but... Let's get back to the Oregon. Where did that truly enter your life, uh, leading eventually to pipe dreams? Oh, I, I mean, the organ was there all the time. I just didn't really pay a particular... Well, maybe I did. Uh, we went to a Presbyterian church in Kingston, Pennsylvania, which, uh, for those of you who are geographically challenged, is the northeastern part of the state, the old anthracite district, right across the Susquehanna from Wilkesbury. The church had a beautiful Hook and Hastings organ over in the right corner. It had been electrified, and there was a console over on the left side near the choir stalls. We, for reasons that I can only imagine, sat towards the front of the church. Uh, Maybe it was for easy access for the children's sermons. We didn't have so far to walk up the aisle. But we had a good visual watching the organist, uh, which is something that you don't often get a chance to do. Organ consoles are often stuffed away in holes or around corners, and everything is very hidden. But here it was possible to watch pretty much everything that Marion Wallace did. You could see the music on the rack. You could see all three of the keyboards. You could see her drawing the stops. You could watch her working the swell pedals, pushing the combination buttons. And we would after the service, go over and stand next and watch her play the postlude. And when she was done, she would cancel the combinations. And then we were allowed, my brother and I would switch week after week. We were allowed to push the switch down and turn the blower off. And I suppose a little bit of that from early childhood and then piano lessons and the fact that my Boy Scout troop met in the basement of the very same church, and the sanctuary was open, and my father was a deacon, and my grandfather was on the session, and I guess I felt that I could go up and turn it on, since I knew how to turn it (laughs) off, um, without getting into too much trouble. Uh, I guess in my teen years, I would go up, and I would root around in the music that was left next to the bench and see what of it I could play and listen to the stops. I don't think I really took any organ lessons until I went to Oberlin. And I went to Oberlin specifically not to go into music. I had determined by that point that although I loved music, I sang in the glee club in high school as well as played in the band, as well as took piano lessons, as well as by that time had started to accumulate recordings of organ music, uh, I decided that music was not something that I would probably be able to... uh, achieve professionally. I didn't really want to teach either. I think since my father was first a high school teacher and then a college teacher, even so I, because of our financial circumstances, felt that maybe I wanted to aim higher. Oberlin was suggested to me because of all the music that was there. 
and I figured that was fine, and it's also a very highly acclaimed liberal the arts college. Sure. Yeah. So I figured, you know, good place to go. I didn't know what I wanted to be or what I wanted to study, but it would be a nice place to figure it out. One thing led to another, and I ended up with a degree in music history. <laughs> um, I took organ as my applied instrument. I got involved in radio on campus. That's probably as interesting as getting involved with the organ because if I hadn't gotten involved in radio, pipe dreams wouldn't exist. I had become acquainted with a fellow who lived just down the river in Berwick, Timothy Foley, his name. He was a clarinetist, uh, same age as I, and it turned out that although we knew each other tangentially in high school, he also was an incoming freshman in the autumn of 1964 at Oberlin College. And by a strange twist of fate, we ended up in the same dormitory section on the same floor. And so I got to know him a little better. He was much braver than I. Uh, he had studied very seriously the clarinet uh, with Anthony Giuliani, who was the principal with the Philadelphia, and had the courage, I guess is what it took, as well as the curiosity, to sign up to be a student announcer on the little 10-watt station on campus. And I had none of that courage, uh, nor inclination. But by spring of that freshman year, he had gotten involved in other things and was getting a little impatient with the radio work and somehow palmed it off on me. He wanted me to take over the last couple of weeks of his responsibility. And somehow I had the courage to say, okay, or, or the curiosity maybe, <laughs> and uh, went over. And I remember announcing my first afternoon's program and being absolutely terrified. You know, when the microphone came on and I had to say, we'll now listen to Brahms' Symphony Number no. 1, recorded by Sir John Barbaroli and the Halle Orchestra. You know, I was about to fall out of my chair. But I had committed to do this for a few weeks, and it turns out that a fellow who had been the assistant to the music director was going to be the music director next year, and he needed an assistant. And since I was taking some courses already at that point in the conservatory, he thought that I would be an able right-hand man. Because the radio station was mostly run by kids who were in the college, not the conservatory students. I guess the conservatory students were too busy practicing or something like that. Um, so I ended up spending three years on WOBC, the last two as music director, which basically meant that I was responsible for herding the other announcers and getting them to do their programs. And at the end of my four years at Oberlin, not wanting to go immediately into graduate school, I thought, hmm, maybe I can put bread on the table announcing classical music somewhere. Well, there was not a public radio system as exists today, but there were some stations that uh, were looking for classical music announcers, and one of them happened to be in Collegeville, Minnesota. And I figured life could be worse and... Uh, was happy to take that job, imagining I'd only be there for a few years. And uh, come August of 2010, I will have been there 42 years, still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. And is it still, are you still in the same place? That radio station, KSJR, went on the air in January of 67. Uh, I came in August of 68. 
Um, Corporation for Public Broadcasting did not come into being until 69 or 70. And then the big growth of public radio around the country. With that establishment of of, uh, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, it appeared to the university that it might be better for the station if it were an independent rather than a subsidiary organization. And so Minnesota Educational Radio, as it was first called, and now Minnesota Public Radio was established and has been uh, independent of any educational institution, independent of state support, dependent in the best way on listeners and the additional dollars that a strong audience can generate from other sources. And I think now we have certainly per capita more members in support of the Minnesota public radio system, which now operates three 24-hour program services, distinct program services, and operates something like 38 or so stations around the state. Uh, We also have a station in Miami and are in the process of buying another one in West Palm Beach, and we operate a station in Pasadena, California. (laughs) It's uh, been quite a change since I first got there, and it's been fun to watch it all. I I predate Garrison Keillor by about 18 months, so it's also been fascinating to see the evolution of that iconic That's become an institution in itself. That's right. Uh, Well, I want to talk about you coming up with themes uh, week after week after week. There's there's always some kind of... uh, special substance to your programs. Uh, How do you come up with all these different ideas? I use the term only somewhat facetiously, inspired whimsy. Uh, There is so much material that it is a challenge to figure out how to winnow it, how to pluck from it whatever might be the best or the most interesting, and then how to put it together in sequences that maybe make some sense, if I'm lucky. I I think I just kind of cast about in the turmoil of my office and see what's at the top of a pile and then whether that leads to something else. And occasionally it turns out very nicely. And sometimes I wonder what I had in mind. Well, you brought a recording of uh, things that you've used on uh, Pipe Dreams, and I thought we'd turn to those now. Uh, one of them's a piece about a toad. <laughs> Clarence Mader, a California composer and teacher, uh, very highly regarded in the uh, Los Angeles organ scene, still in his memory. He and his wife were unfortunately killed in a very tragic automobile accident quite a number of years ago. He wrote as was maybe typical of the 60s and 70s in a sometimes rather astringent style. But in this particular piece, he uh, lets his hair down and lets us smile. A piece that is called Afternoon of a Toad cannot be taken too seriously. And here's Cherry Rhodes playing it on the marvelous Fisk organ at the Meyerson Symphony Center 
in Dallas, Texas. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. We didn't hear Afternoon of a Fawn, but Afternoon of a Toad, uh, one of your favorites uh, from your own show, Pipe Dreams. Yeah, I mean, it's a piece that had not been recorded before, and I had this marvelous concert tape of Cherry Rhodes at the Meyerson Symphony Center in Dallas, and I thought, well, you know, the world needs to hear this. I'm I'm not even sure that the piece has been published yet. She was working, because she was very close with Clarence Mater, she was working from the manuscript in his personal collection. But uh, it's a sweetheart, isn't it? Another piece on the same uh, CD interests me because it's a different it's a different way of listening to the Mendelssohn Piano Concerto. So talk to me about that. Two friends from my Oberlin days, they were a year or two behind me in class, uh, collaborated in a summer recital at the Methuen Memorial Music Hall in Massachusetts. George Lamphere grew up in the vicinity of Methuen and he was invited to play a recital he chose to invite his friend, Robert Pittman, to join him uh, in a performance of the Mendelssohn First Piano Concerto. Now, it still is not common to hear piano concertos with organ accompaniment, That's right. although it probably was more likely in previous generations. But particularly at Methuen, in this marvelous turn-of-the-century space with this incredibly colorful instrument, also with an old, I believe it was a Chickering grand piano, nine foot from late 19th century with its own particular color. It really works. And that it works as well as it does on the microphone, that it works as well as it does in the recording is just by chance. I think so much in the circumstance of my life I never really paid any attention to the fact that I was brought up Presbyterian. but And I don't really give a lot of thought to it now. But in Presbyterian life, they speak of predestination. And there are too many moments in my life when a corner is turned and something is there unexpectedly but absolutely appropriately and advantageously. 
I went with some friends. We drove out from Minnesota to hear Bart, who had spent a year in Minnesota as organist at St. John's Abbey, to hear this recital. I brought recording equipment with me. I had a stereo microphone, which I was going to put on a stand in the center of the hall. They said, no, you're not, because that's an aisle, and we don't want any stands there. And I thought, huh? There was another fellow who was making a recording, and he had microphones on two large beam, paddle-like things that he brought up from the transept. And I thought, well, that won't work because mine's a stereo microphone, and he's got two single microphones. But he was very sweet and said, you can plug into the output of my recorder and just take a feed. So I rolled tape on my little Tanberg open reel deck, and that is what you will hear. What you don't hear is that since that recording was made, both of these artists have died, but they live on in this music, and if you hear them play this Mendelssohn, it is like no Mendelssohn first concerto you will have ever heard. Where do we pick it up? There's sort of a trumpet fanfare that leads from the slow movements, which itself is gorgeous, but we we don't have time to do everything, and then into the lickety-split final section. performance of Mendelssohn's Piano Concerto with organ rather than orchestra. Your show Pipe Dreams goes back to about 1983 as a, as a weekly? Yeah. It, uh, we had a little trial balloon in 1982 when there, were, uh, there was a quarter's worth of programs that came from a National American Guild of Organists convention of 1980. And uh, by the time those programs went on the air in January of 82, it was obvious that the convention, the next convention, which was going to be the summer of 82, no one was interested in covering. And so even though it was happening in Washington rather than in the Twin Cities as the one in 1980 had, I raised my hand and said, well, you know, if you'd like me to, I can arrange. And so through the national convention in the Twin Cities again in 2008, I have been responsible for recording all of the national conventions of the American Guild of Organists. And we brought the program back. I mean, with that sort of a resource, we brought the program back in 1983, and I figured there's enough material to keep this going week after week after week. It doesn't have to be all American Guild of Organists convention recitals either. So um, uh, I've proven that to be true. And frankly, I could probably do a daily program and not run out of material. Well, you must be a great favorite of organists and churches and uh, 
places that have organs because you draw attention to their instruments. It's odd because I never set out to be Michael Barone, the host of Pipe Dreams. Uh, I never really, I mean, I didn't set out to be in radio in the first place either. Uh, And the fact that I was in the right place at the right time and was able to make something happen because no one said no, I think that was pretty much the circumstance. I should add that the title of the program is not mine. I do come up with occasionally interesting titles for the weekly shows, but the name Pipe Dreams, when I went to my boss at the time at Minnesota Public Radio after that 1980 AGO convention, I had this stack of tapes that I thought was good enough for prime time. He said, well, I think we can find a way to get that into a national distribution channel. Uh, what would you like to call the program? And I hadn't even thought that you had to have a name for a program. And the National Biennial American Guild of Organists Convention Concert Series didn't even make a very good acronym. And so I sort of shrugged, and in that split second of uncomfortable silence, my boss, his name Nicholas Nash, came back with, why don't we call the program Pipe Dreams? So he gets one footnote in American broadcasting history. Actually, he earns two because Nick Nash also as program director at Minnesota Public Radio in that time, established the relationship with the BBC, which brought the Christmas Eve live transmission of the Lessons and Carols service from King's College to America. So not only do we have Nick to blame for the name of my show, but we have him to celebrate and thank for the marvelous sounds that we all enjoy on Christmas Eve morning here in the USA. And you're on, what, 150 stations? Yeah, it goes up and down. Uh, I'm guessing 150 at the moment. I'm hoping for some more. It used to be that getting into the major markets was difficult, but I'm in New York City now, astonishingly. I'm also in Miami, but that's because we own the station there, (laughs) which is a strange circumstance. But it's kind of always an uphill battle Program managers still think that organ music is something that people don't want to hear. I find this difficult to believe, just as I was incredulous when Cyril Harris said that you can't have a pipe organ in a concert hall and have good acoustics. A a year ago, I had a marvelous experience in Rochester, New York. Now, this is a city with the Eastman School of Music at its heart, and it's a place where organ music is certainly not a rare thing. You can go to an organ recital probably every week, maybe every other day. But we decided to do some Pipe Dreams live events there, and I tried an experiment to do a weekend with a Friday evening, a Saturday evening, and a Sunday afternoon. Friday evening at Sacred Heart Cathedral. We got there an hour early. There were already quite a number of cars in the parking lot. I wondered whether maybe the AA was meeting in the basement or something. Came into the sanctuary. There were already 200 people seated 50 minutes beforehand, 20 minutes before the concert was to begin, the place was full. They had to get out extra chairs. By the time the concert was to begin, there were dozens of people standing along the walls and in the back. Two and a half hours later, I thought, we've exhausted Rochester. Who's going to show up for these other events on Saturday and Sunday? Saturday night at the Episcopal Church, a slightly smaller venue, again, Lots of people, early, 
lots of extra chairs brought out and put places where the fire marshal would allow, and then some other places too. Fifty people stood through three hours, and I counted them because I could. I was at the front, they were at the back, and there were still 50 people at the end of three hours. Then I really worried about Sunday. In Rochester in February, it's always cloudy if it's not snowing. Sunday, the sun was out. The sky was blue. It was a beautiful, crisp winter day. And I imagine that anyone in their right mind would simply be outstanding looking at the sun (laughs) and absorbing vitamin D. At the Auditorium Theater, we had 1,300 people. And of those, more than half had never been there before, even though that venue is used regularly nine months out of the year, every month with some major performance or another. So no one's listening to organ music? Somewhere they are. (laughs) They certainly are. We're about to run out of time, but I know you had one more piece of music that you wanted to squeeze in. So let's get to that. Back to my days with the sousaphone in high school, I ended up at a district band conference where our grand finale was a movement from a symphony by a young pupil of Tchaikovsky, Vasily Kalinikov. He died young of tuberculosis. It's a marvelous piece, and though not often performed these days, had a real popularity in the middle of the 20th century, Toscanini recorded it with NBC, and the Indianapolis Symphony recorded it back in the days of 78 RPM discs. The final movement has a grand chorale-like theme, and at the very end of the final movement, it comes back to assert itself. And in this arrangement for a big band, there was an extra group of brass players from the local schools joining with this mix of the top players from the region. It was quite an effect. 25 years later, it turns out, as music director at Minnesota Public Radio, I chose to do a live broadcast of our Rochester, Minnesota orchestra because they were playing this same piece. And it turns out the conductor of that concert was the younger brother of the fellow I was sitting next to on Mm. stage, and he was a trombone player at the back of the high school auditorium playing in this extra choir at the very end. 25 years later, because of high school music, two guys, now professionals, are sharing this very interesting and heartwarming piece of music with a much larger audience in, in the Midwest. So I thought we'd listen to the final movement. It's, it's really quite grand, and when it gets to the end, think of me huffing away in the tuba line <laughs> and the brass blaring in the back. This is the last movement of Symphony Number no. 1 by Vasily Kalinikov. We'll listen to a performance by the National Symphony of the Ukraine, conducted by Theodore Kuchar. Thank you. 
final movement of the Kalinikov Symphony Number no. 1. Takes me back to my high school days. It really, it's just such a marvelous thing. Quite a piece. As we say goodbye, what's the organ mean to you? The organ is kind of a microcosm of the aesthetic, artistic, and spiritual experience. It, it is this mechanical contrivance, which up until the industrial age had no equal. Not only is it complex to the point of being incomprehensible still to many people, but that complexity is applied to a sound which is controlled by a single player. And it's not just a single sound, it's a multiplicity of sounds which can be blended and contrasted and changed in their dynamics, rich, soft, delicate, overwhelming. It also looks nifty. The architecture of the organ, just the visual splendor of it, gives you a hint of what will happen when the instrument begins to play. And you understand to a degree why it is that in old times, and still to me sometimes now, as jaded and overwhelmed as we are by 21st century culture, there is something about the impossibility that the pipe organ should exist at all, that it should be able to sound as wonderful as it does, and that this incredible body of music that has been written for it can be so powerful, so urgent in its emotional message that if you just give it a little bit of time and open your ears and listen, you cannot help but be thrilled. Michael Barone, you're a man in love. Thanks for sharing your passion with us on Profiles. This is Peter Jacoby. The program you just heard was recorded in April of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.